So we're super excited to have Bob Fen Lautz to be on our Open Source Startup Podcast. This is Tim at Essence VC and our newly minted partner, Ravi from Cowboy Ventures. Just very quickly, what semi-technologies the company is actually what's called, and VV is a project name. VV is a vector search engine. It's an open source vector search engine. And we'll definitely talk more about what it means. So welcome, Bob. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Awesome. So I think the most obvious place to start is what exactly is a vector search engine? Oh, that's a great question. So to answer that question, I need to give a little bit of background and history. And this has to do with the fact that storing data and searching through data always has been done based on very sophisticated ways of keyword matching or any way of like how you want to, you know, match data in your database to get insights from it. And at some point when we saw the whole deep learning boom, basically, there was a different way started to appear to index and search with data. So machine learning models, I mean, not all of them, but the majority output vectors. And these vectors is, we can go into that, what that actually means maybe for the audience who wants to know it, but the output vectors. And if you store these vectors, you can represent your data based on these vectors. And now you can search through your data in ways that was not possible before. And it's not only limited to natural language processing, that can go for images, that can go for audio, for genes, for you name it. But the majority of cases are still in natural language processing. And a very, very simple example that I can give is this. If you store a document that says, the Eiffel Tower is in Paris. If you store that in your traditional database or search engine, because the search engine is a type of database, and you search for it, then you must search for or Eiffel or Tower or Paris. But what if you search for landmarks in France? You will not find it. And what happens with these vector databases is that the machine learning model not only vectorizes the data objects, but also the query. And now it can find that data as well. And if you like, we can go more into depth, like what that means in the background and why it's interesting to build a database around that. But in a nutshell, that is what a vector search engine solves. It allows you to store data that is processed by a machine learning model. And the reason you want that is because it becomes easier to find data. Awesome. So that's a really helpful explanation of what a vector is and why it's applicable. Where did we want to go all the way back to the beginning? So where sure. did this idea come from? We imagine VBA came first, but like what was kind of the origin story of the project and then the decision to actually build a company around it? The history goes actually pretty far back. So and I mean in technology, pretty far means five years or something. So not 50 years, but like five years. And there were two things that were simultaneously happening. And one thing back then I was working as a freelance software engineer. And because of the whole deep learning boom in NLP, I got intrigued by natural language processing. And I remember, I know when it was, I know where it was, that somebody for the first time demoed to me what you could do with natural language processing that was coming from, I believe it was FastText or Glove, I, I don't remember. And there's this very famous, oh well, I mean, if you're in the space, there's this famous calculation. And it went something like, if I find in vector space the word king, and I find in vector space the word man, and I go like just king minus man, what do I end up with? And then the result was queen. And I remember that I saw that for the first time, and I was intrigued by that. I was like, wow, that the machine can do that. So that was something that was happening, and I was just playing around with that. Nothing fancy, just playing around with it. And then something else happened. I was back then working as a, they call it a developer expert for Google. It's like a, yeah, how do you call it, program that you can be part of. 
And they invited me to a product launch in San Francisco. And just recently, Google announced that they said, like, we're going to move from PageRank to RankBrain. That said, we're going to use machine learning to index these web pages. And I kind of figured, hey, wait a second, probably those things are somehow related. So what's happening in natural language processing and in what Google's doing with RankBrain? And then I was in San Francisco and I was at a conference. And back then, today, the landscape is different. But back then I said, like, are you going to build a database being Google that actually has that technology that vectorizes content and offer that to B2B customers. And people I was talking to, they were like, no, 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 we're not doing that because, you know, everything is, you know, a different company. I mean, it has the same name, but different, blah, 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 et cetera. And then I thought, that's an opportunity. That's what I'm going to do. And literally, I opened the GitHub repo for Weaviate on the airport in San Francisco when I was traveling home. And that's how I started. And there's more to say about this because... I was just experimenting with like, can I use these machine learning models to index data and store them? But there wasn't a database yet. And then I met my co-founder, HN, and we figured out, wait a second, a database that's actually good at storing these vectors as opposed to traditional way of storing data, that's new. That's like, that doesn't really exist. And then we basically said, you know what? If you focus on building the technology, I'll focus on the open source business side of things. And that's how we kind of started. And that is on a high level and in a nutshell, the origin story of how we started. Yeah, super fascinating where this term vector database, right, never exists in the market for some time. I, I guess it exists before, but not mainstreaming. Like not everybody will go search for a vector database. And you certainly are inserting into the space, into this very busy database market, so talk to, like, how do you start in the first place? Like, do you just go out there and say we're a vector database and people that actually know what their term means will go and find you? Or did you actually start in a much more, hey, I am semi or I am Weaviates. I'm here to solve a particular problem, like a more, more example driven. Like, just talk, how did a starting point actually go about? That's a great question. And the use case based positioning of what you're doing is something that I'm not a big fan of. If you like, we can talk about that later when it comes to positioning an open source project. But to answer your question, no, we did not position it as first as a vector database. Because the problem was, I was thinking, okay, so how can we somehow position this in a way that it overlaps with what people are doing? And back then, so it's important to know that Weaviate has a graph-like data model. It's not a graph database, it's a vector database, but it has a graph-like data model. So what we started to do is that we started to position it as a knowledge graph. And for those who are listening, if you type on YouTube, it's called Google Cloud Stack Chat. You see me back there wearing some red pants. And <laughs> I'm still talking about Weaviate from the perspective of it being a knowledge graph. But later we learned like that's very confusing to people because people use graph database for knowledge graphs. And then we were like, why don't we double down on this? The important thing that we're doing is related to vectors. So we started to call it a vector database or more precisely call it a vector search engine because yes, it's a vector database, but of the flavor vector search engine. And I'm not sure when we started to do that, but it's if you go back in our GitHub history and look at the history of our README, <laughs> you can find when we started to call it a vector search engine. So to answer your question, we did not start off calling it that way. We gave it a different name first, but then we learned like, why not double down on that? Because that is just what it is. It's a way to store vectors and search for them. And maybe a follow-up question on that. How and 
who found you? Because you have some positioning for software engineers and data scientists and data engineers. So who initially found you and how did they find you? What were they looking for? Because even if we weren't going to be too deterministic about the use cases, there's some reason that they sought us out. Yes. So there are two things that we have to be grateful for that happened in the in the market, basically. The first one was everything that was happening in machine learning and the democratization of machine learning. So I'm talking platforms like Hugging Face, but also what OpenAI is doing, et cetera. And a problem that people started to see is like, hey, we see, for example, you can go to Hugging Face, find the sentence similarity model, and then you have like these on the right side of the website, you have these three options that you can search through it. And people are like, oh, this is amazing. Now I can search through text based on these machine learning models. But I don't have three sentences. I have 10 million documents. That doesn't scale if you just build that in a Python project. You need an actual database for it to do that. So the first thing that we saw happening was that people wanted that. They were searching for something to scale search. So searching with machine learning models. That's the first thing. The second thing was there were things around that you could use. So from Spotify, you had something called a library, which is called Annoy. Yet from Facebook, you had Vice and those kind of, or you have, they still exist. But these things are libraries. The problem is you can build a database with these kind of things. And that is something that should not be underestimated because let's say you have an e-commerce store and you factorize your data and you build a Vice or Annoy index. It's immutable, so you can't change it anymore. And that's not very handy if you have products that are changing or reviews that are coming in or what have you. So you really want to have a database. And that's where we saw the opportunity. Like, we're not only going to build something that just stores these vectors. We're going to create something that is a full-fledged database that is vector-first. So everything that you know from a database, like, I don't know, like Mongo or Elasticsearch or what have you, or Solar, you have that with us too, but vector-first. So yeah, I want to ask you about vector database, like more specifically. Because if you mm-hmm. look at at least the current ones that has anything to do with unstructured data with a database next to it, it looks quite different, each one of them. Because I think the nature of databases, we all know RDBMS is have a SQL interface, it stores data in these columns. They all roughly have a very similar sort of interfaces, and you know roughly what they do. Plus and minus some scalability, latency, and a little bit extra features. Now you look at vector databases, you have a GraphQL API, you do text, right? And you do certain features around ML ops as well. When you look at another maybe unrelated technology or product, it looks completely different, more, more images searching, right? It's actually not no standard yet. I'm just curious, like, what is your choices you made? Why did you make the choices about, like, making a GraphQL interface, for example? Is it because you have more application developer-minded? And even why text? You could actually do images, you can do audios and other things. I assume it's all supported, but most of the use cases when it comes to, like, the examples start with text. Just curious of what the choices meant. Like, how did you make those default choices in the first place? So let me answer the question two ways. So let's talk about the interface difference from the use cases, what you can do. So when it comes to the use cases, so why people store vectors and how they search through them, that is growing rapidly. So I think give or take 70% of the use cases we see are NLP-based. Then we have about 20 to 25% are images and then 5% are very esoteric cases. We're talking from audio to DNA sequencing and those kind of things. So you see all kinds of things because basically you can factorize anything in a machine learning model. So that's the same with VFH. You just 
whatever you do, you can use whatever you want. What we do do is that we offer modules for use cases that people have. So for example, sentence transformers that are coming from Hugging Face, a lot of people use them. So we just said like, okay, we prepackage them for you that you just press a button and that you can use them. So the thing to that is that the way that we use vector search results is very different as opposed to traditional databases. Because what you do, and for those listening who are not particularly aware of what, what it means in vector space, is literally means that you store data in space. Not three-dimensional, but sometimes 300-dimensional, sometimes 700-dimensional, and the biggest model from OpenAI is 12,000-something of dimensional space, and that's how we store the data. And the thing is, the way that you get stuff out of that space, the way that you present it to the end user is very different. So it's a different way of presenting data. And in all honesty, we're currently learning together with the community how people do that. That is new. So a lot of people see the value. We know the value because we know that in the background, Google search is a, is a vector database. So everybody knows the value, but we try to figure out like what's the best way to present it. So that's the first part of my answer, basically. And the second part is you somehow, if you have it in the database, need to expose it to people. So people somehow need to get access to the, to the data. And in WeViate, we have an API-first approach. And we're not going to change it, but we're kind of going to change it in our documentation. It might be interesting to say something about that as well. Then we said, like, what is the easiest way for people to get a data object out that has a vector representation? And we decided that GraphQL and, of course, traditional old-fashioned RESTful APIs were very suited for that. One thing that we're moving towards is that we believe that there's a trend going from API-based search in databases to code first. So the libraries that people are using in Python, in JavaScript, in Java, in Go, what have you, we want to go to like more language, language approach first so that in the documentation, people really integrate the database from the language they want to write in first. So then they even don't know if they're using the GraphQL API or GRSP API, those kind of things. But the reason for the choices that we made in the API was to make it as easy as possible to get access to the data with the tools that people know. Awesome. So we want to go back to when you first released VV8. And so it sounds like you're sitting at the airport, you release it. Like what happened? And was there anything that you did or learned during that kind of release moment? Like, did you watch what users were doing and start writing content? Like what was kind of your process from when you first released it? And what actually happened? Like what kind of growth or usage did you start to see? Oh yeah, that's a great question actually. So if I think about it now, there were three stages. So the first stage was that I was using Reviate and it's important to say it was not positioned as a database per se. It was just a project. And I was just doing it alone. And I was traveling a lot. Also, thanks to the what I mentioned earlier, that Google Developer Program, I was able to travel around and just show people like, hey, wait a second, there's a different way to think about storing data, which is not just the traditional way, but that it's just run a true machine learning model and store these factory presentations. That was actually for quite a long time. I think that was like maybe for two years or something. And then at some point, and this is like the second important milestone, I was like, now, wait a second, we can actually get closer to making this a database. And back then, we were still looking at integrating WeViet with another database or those kind of things. And then we also saw like community adoption grow because people were like, hey, this is interesting. Let's experiment with it. And then the third epoch, if you will, <laughs> was I think two years ago or something. I might be wrong, but some about two years ago, 
when we really position it as a standalone database, then we started to release it as standalone database, and then usage went through the roof. So if you look also at the statistics of our GitHub repo, you literally see this, and then it goes up a bit, and then it shoots to the moon. And so it definitely seems like there's impressive growth for you, right? You know, there's like eight, almost quite 900,000 pulls of Docker, and you have a lot yep. of stars. And was it just all organic, or did you have to hone down content and hone down sort of conference messaging? Maybe give us some learnings you did trying to learn how to get adoption, because it's usually the number one challenge is actually just gain adoption, right? And gain quite a large adoption. And it can feel quite magical. And we talked to many different people. Many different people have very different sort of ways and strategies. Just curious, what did you try? And is there any key learnings you learned? Yes. So I think the first thing before, as like preamble to answering the question is, there's this nice blog post, I think, from Mark Andreessen, from Andreessen Horowitz, that he makes an argument that he says, like, the market always wins. So he has like a few lines and then he concludes the market always wins. So we are lucky that we are in a situation that people start to search for these kind of technologies. So they want to have these types of technologies to integrate them into their stack. They go like, we love these machine learning models. We want to scale them. That is something I would love to take credit for it, but I can't. That is just something that's happening thanks to what our friends at Arguing Phase and our friends at OpenAI are doing, et cetera, and just the machine learning market in general. So that's a preamble before answering your question. Now, if that's the case, then you need to create some kind of content because if people are not able to find what you're doing, that just doesn't work. Then the question becomes, so how do you do that? And this is more complicated. So one of the things that I often, when I talk to people about this, it's like there's like this 80-20 distribution of the community. So the first 10% are people that are interested in your technology, but they can't use it. Then you have this 80% distribution that are people who need these kind of technologies because they're maybe at their job, they're tasked with solving a problem, building a recommendation engine, those kind of things. And then you have the last 10% of people that are people who are very knowledgeable in the space, but they just might not be buyers or big users of your technology, but they make a lot of noise about what you're doing. And what you somehow need to do is that you need to figure out how do I speak to the 80% and how keep the last 10% happy. And now practical examples. So practical examples for the 80% are just recently a community member wrote an article about searching through similar stamps based on Weaviate. That was an image search case. We had somebody write, they had a startup and they indexed 60 million data objects. They wrote a blog about how they are using Weaviate. We're doing a lot ourselves there. So my colleague, Laura, was recently at the Knowledge Graph conference in New York and giving presentations how you could look at data like this. So that is based for the 80% that people go like, hey, that's interesting. For that other 10%, you create content that is, you just want to show the power of what you're building. You just want to show, okay, we know what we're doing. We're doing something good. So now think benchmarks, think going to 1 billion factor size, those kind of things. You do not do that for the 80% of community members, but for that 10%. But the thing is that 10% makes a lot of noise and the 80% listens to the 10%. So long story short, what we tried to do is that we said, okay, we want to make content for the 80%, but we don't want to lose the 10%. So we shift back and forth between the type of content that we produce to make both the 80% and the 10% of the distribution happy. That's how we do it. 
And is there a difference in who the persona is for the 80% versus the 10%? Because I think it's really unique that we service software engineers, data engineers, data scientists. We often see products that will have kind of a focus on one of those. And so are we finding that the 80% are a certain like profile of user or is it pretty evenly spread depending on what they're trying to do with EDA? So again, not talking about that last 10% because that's a very niche group. That 80% is the personas that we see are roughly speaking, data scientists, software engineers, and DevOps folks. And they all have a different problem. And what might surprise you, I will also tell you what the most difficult audience is for us to speak to, but the DevOps people are tasked by, okay, we have a machine learning model. We need to search with that model in production for whatever we're solving. Give me something that is production ready. So they find Weaviate. They have all kinds of questions about queries per second, about replication, those kind of things. But we can make these people happy. Check in the box. Software engineers go like, well, I'm building a solution which is ML first or AI first, whatever, however you want to call that. I want to have a database that does that. So I'm going to click my favorite hugging face model and I want to drag that into Weaviate and then do whatever I want to do with it. Talking to these people is not that hard either. So it's also checking them out. What is a difficult audience for us are data scientists, because those are people who make the models. And the trend that we're seeing in the industry is that when the model is done, people go like, okay, my job is done. I'm, you know, I made the model. Ta-da. And then the question is like, yeah, so how do I scale that model to production? And that is what we try to explain to that type of persona that you say like, well, it's great that you made this model, but that doesn't bring it to production. It's just a model. And scaling models to production is hard. So those are the three personas that we see and that we try to cater to. And again, here we are helped by the market because more and more production systems are AI first or ML first, however, whatever nomenclature you desire to use. But they are ML first. And more and more people are like, hey, we need systems and databases or pipelines that help us to bring that to production. And that is how we basically communicate to these three personas. But again, ML ops people, easiest. Software engineers, pretty easy. Data scientists, a little bit harder. So one question is about the naming, right? Semi-technology is its company name. Weavy is the project name. But we've definitely talked to many different companies that try to separate them to have different identities and communities. Just kind of curious, what is your thought process to create two different entities here? And where semi-technologies... Actually, the blogs to talk about Weaviate lives in semi-technologies. And so it's a little harder to tell what is the intention behind separating and what is actually being separated here for what purpose. Yeah. So I think at some point you have a project, which in this case is Weaviate. And then when you build a company around it, the question is like, okay, do I want to build like a branded house or a house of brands? And the branded house might seem like a logical first step because you said, okay, we have this Weaviate and everything we do, we focus on Weaviate and it's just only Weaviate. You could do that. That's a way how to do it. But if you look at it from a branded house perspective, you can say, well, we want to have a company and you can see that on the Semi website. The Semi website says like, we built a open source AI first infrastructure. Weaviate is just a first project and product in that. And I mean, we're in this for the long run. So we want to build a huge company, right, around the open source technologies that we're building. So we've used it first and we've decided to go for a branded house. And, you know, if people know companies like, I don't know, Unilever, 
right? It's like almost nobody knows the name Unilever, but the things Colgate toothpaste or I believe Magnum ice cream is also from them. I'm not 100% sure, but the point is that's a way to position yourself in the market. And I think from our peers doing similar things, they have a similar goal. That's like, this is just one project, one product, and we have way more ideas. So we want to make a distinction between the project and the company. And that's literally what you see on the WeFiate website. So you can see on the Semi website, I have to say currently the Semi website is very, there's not a lot on there. It's just careers and that kind of stuff. And then you have the WeFiate website that's very rich, a lot of content. And then if you scroll all the way down to the button, it says WeFiate is an open source project maintained by Semi Technologies. So earlier in the podcast, you talked about how you didn't fully believe in use case-based framing up front. And I, I really want to understand what you meant by that and how you kind of figured out who to try to encourage or, or who to write content for, who to target without kind of having a, a use case-based approach. So to answer that question, I need to be a little bit more theoretical or abstract in the answer. And that's the following. So what I strongly believe is that if you build a company with technology in general, but let's just focus on software, you need to make this trade-off. And the trade-off is this. So, or you're going to be very low in the stack and with that very abstract, or you're going to be very high in the stack and very concrete about what you're doing. So, very simple example. If you go very low in the stack, you might have something like Kubernetes. So the question is, what is the use case for Kubernetes? What do people build on top of Kubernetes? Yeah, everything that you want to scale and run, right? There are websites running Kubernetes. There are databases running Kubernetes. And then we don't even know what they serve to the end user, right? So that's an example of something being very low in stack. If you go higher up in the stack, let's say maybe a, I don't know, a front-end framework like Bootstrap, that's very precise. So now you build something that is, it's a front-end framework that's very, has its own look and feel. It's yeah, what sometimes people say, it's bootstrappy. You can only use it to build websites with, you can't use it to... Uh, build a re-ranker system with, because that's, of course, that would be weird to do that with CSS. So the point that I'm making is that you, as an entrepreneur, you need to make a decision that if I'm going to be very low in the stack, the industries that I can serve and the people that I can serve is everything. So back to the Kubernetes example, give me an example of what Kubernetes not can serve. That's like, it's almost everything. And then you have to accept the fact that it's difficult, that the use cases that people will build on top of them are farther away. If you build something that's very concrete, high up in the stack, then it's very easy to explain what you're doing because, okay, this is a graphical interface that does X or whatever. And we create database technology. So we're not as deep as Kubernetes, but we're just above that. And one of the things that we do is that we say, like, we're industry agnostic, we're use case agnostic, but we look at the personas using us. So we try to find the right personas and say, okay, this is what you can do with a vector database. And because I strongly believe that if you keep that open and you just educate the market what they can do with, in our case, a vector search engine, but for Kubernetes that could be with, you know, a cloud cluster, you have way more opportunity. And then you just need to accept the fact that you need more time more education, but by not pigeonholing what you're doing, the market opportunity is tremendously bigger. And that is why I say be careful, especially when you build software with use cases, because I could say with our technology, okay, our technology is great for, and I'm making this up on the spot for indexing legal documents. I could say that, right? Because that is use case that we have. And then people go like, oh, so we is a database for legal documents. No, it's a database. So 
you don't want to pigeonhole too soon because otherwise you confuse the market too much, but you're, air quotes, paying with abstraction where you need to educate the market of all the things that you can do with your database. So I'm actually a little curious about where you are located at, because when I'm looking at the very first blog post you wrote, it actually says this is first published in a Dutch magazine. And it seems like that's actually the original place you started evangelizing wasn't to everybody, right? It seems like it's actually part of it, like I assume, is to your local community first. Is there any advantage or disadvantages starting in Copenhagen, you know, this kind of open source companies? Just curious, is there any interesting insights to that? The answer is, is a little bit different than what you might be expecting. So you might be expecting, like, was there a strategy of starting in, like, Holland doing that? No. I was just trying to get the word out, and everybody who wanted to listen, I would talk to, right? So that happened to be, because I'm Dutch, it happened to be in Holland. So that was more the strategy, like getting that organic content out. So who wants to listen to this story? And I have to admit, back then, it was way harder to tell the story, because it's not that vector databases are around for like five years. It's just a very new concept. So everybody was like, hey, we see that opportunity of using these machine learning models to factorize data it was very new. So everybody who wanted to listen, you know, I spoke to them. So that's <laughs> the reason why that happened. Yeah. So we wanted to ask about the managed WeV8 service. And at what point you decided that that should be a focus for the company? Yeah. So... That is more has to do with open source technology, because if you start a business in the end, you know, you need to somehow capture value, basically. And I think the managed service is a, a very standard way of doing that because people go like, okay, we love your open source technology. We love your database, but we don't want to run it in production. Or an enterprise might say, well, we love the database, but we can't use open source technology in production because of the license. We need to have certain compliance rules and those kind of things. That said, we are experimenting a lot with different ways of positioning the managed service. So we do not only have SaaS, we're also working on something new that I, I can share it here, I guess. I'm not very public about it yet, but we're going to do that very soon. So uh, yeah, you heard it here first. <laughs> but we're moving towards something that we call hybrid SaaS, where we have the UX of SaaS, but on people's own infrastructure. And that is something that people say like, well, we appreciate that you take that hassle away or that you bring us that SLAs or those kind of things. And that is how we try to monetize the open source technology. And I guess one follow-up question on that is around timing. Like, was there a point in time where you decided it was the right time to start focus on extracting value? Because there's always this kind of trade-off with open source-based companies. When to shift focus from solely being on the community to then figuring out how to to your line, like extract value from it. So was there in your mind, like we're getting enough requests for like a managed option or when you raise series A, or like was there something in your mind where you would shift focus to it? So there are two answers to that question. So the first answer is like, yes, people just started to ask. We love the technology, but we can't use it in production because it has an open source license. Do you have something for us? So it's as simple as that. So we're getting you know, quite a lot of inbound currently from with these kind of questions. So that was the first thing. The second thing is that I do think, and not all my peers, so my, I, I of course have friends who are CEOs of other open source companies, they think the same. But I do think that you should ask the question early on, if we bring value to open source, how can we keep serving the community? How can we stay true to the community? But also how can we learn what is it worth for people 
to have with open source technology go, as I like to call it, a dollar go from their bank account to our bank account. And you can be very honest about that. You can ask, you can talk to community members to learn that. I am worried, I might be wrong, but I'm worried that waiting with that too long makes your open source project grow in a way that you can't capture that value anymore. And that is a reason why I do think it's important to start with that from the get-go. It might be that you have 95% focus on the community, 98% focus community, 2% on figuring out how do I at some point going to extract value from what we're bringing. And I don't mean that in a cheesy way. I don't mean it like, oh, we have like our open source is actually a freemium model. No, no, no. I really mean staying true to open source principles, staying true to your community. But, you know, we have community members that work at enterprises that go like, we love the technology, but we just simply cannot run it because of the license in production. And I do think that you need to listen to them and offer something that they can run that technology in production. And we now see that we have a solution engineering team in the company that basically all these from open source inbound users want to buy something. And our solution engineering team helps them to go to production. We also offer these other SLAs, these other services. And then you learn that you're like, whoa, the idea that just having good open source technology does not per se mean that you can just click button and be like a profitable company in the future. That's a whole different ball game. So that's why I do think it's important to look at both from the beginning. I think for the last question, we'd love to just get your advice for other founders. And I think what's definitely unique about you is, like I said, you're introducing a brand new category of a database that doesn't look anything like other databases people even used before. Any advice for technical founders also creating like an open source product that is basically trying to create a new category? There are so many things going through my head now, but you, you probably want one answer. So what I would give as an answer, if you try to build a new category, if you're not sure if you want to start a new category, do it because the reward will be bigger than if you don't. So we could have said like, well, this is like a NoSQL database that stores vectors. No, we really believe it's a new category. And then make a strong distinction between evangelizing together with your peers in the ecosystem, dare I say competitors, but your peers in the ecosystem, versus pushing your own project forward. Because if you make a good project and you focus on a developer-focused way of positioning the product, people will find you. They will find you. But really make that distinction between education and positioning your own solution. Because if you build a better SQL database, you don't have to do that first thing. You don't have to position that because everybody knows what that is. You only have to focus on showing why you are better. Or if you have a time series database or a graph database or what have you, if you do something new like vector search, you have this very weird interaction with your peers because there's like a non-existing pie, right? So you're baking the pie together and then you figure out who is getting what <laughs> piece of the pie and embrace that balance. I would highly recommend that. So to recap, I would say first, make that category, take that risk of establishing it, because if you're successful, you will reap way more benefits from it than without doing it. And secondly is be very aware that you are creating that category together with your peers and then later figure out what your place is in the market and in that space. Awesome. Well, I think that's really, really solid advice and framing to end on. We really appreciate it. This was an awesome conversation. Thank you. I enjoyed it.